You're listening to the best barbecue show, the show where we talk, taste, and even try to cook the best barbecue in Texas, which is the best barbecue in the world. This week we're checking in with the Pope of Barbecue, the man who happily runs the Cathedral of Smoke, but before we get to that, if you want to support the show and also look great at the same time, pick up a hashtag Meatman shirt. You can now go to bestbbqshow.com and get a hashtag Meatman shirt, a hashtag Meatwoman shirt, and even a hashtag Meatman phone case. Show your friends you're a true Meatman or Meatwoman and support your favorite barbecue show. The show is free and we rely on your support to keep up the great work, so go pick up some gear. Support us and look great at the same time. Now, while you're enjoying the show, don't forget to tag at Best Barbecue and all of your social media posts. And I love seeing what you meet men and meet women are cooking. Now, without further ado, another great conversation with Wayne Miller in Taylor, Texas. Your mic's hot, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm here with Wayne Miller, the king of the Cathedral of Smoke, the the man who, uh, you know. The Pope of Smoke. Yeah. That weren't you guys asking what your slogan should be or something? Was that your idea on on Instagram yeah, or yeah, Twitter yeah. or something? Yeah. Which which should our our brand slogan be? Who knows? I mean, Cathedral of Smoke just sort of appeared one day. I, I credit Mike Fulmer with that. Why's that? Because I think he he's the first one I recall saying it. He may not be the first one to say it, but he's the one that sticks in my mind. So, Mike, this is for you. So what, I mean, there must have been nicknames for this place because it was still, even when it was first built or first converted, it was still unique with the giant smokestack in the middle of the room. And Yeah, you know, some of the first things that I heard were Mecca. It was, it was coined in, in editorial, in newspaper editorial as being like the Mecca of Texas barbecue. The newspaper's right behind you, right? Is that still where well, the newspaper is? It wasn't is? that one. I, I think we have... I've. I've given out more press releases than, than the Taylor Press has written articles on us. <laughs> I can tell you that. And the number of press releases I've sent out in the last five years is almost oh. nothing. So it's, it's, um, it seems to be that the Taylor Press sees us sort of like any sort of missionary in their own community are typically, um, they're not well received. The community takes you for granted. They knew you from early on, as you, from your, from the time you were born, as you as you grow and develop, uh, until you you know you sort of crystallize your ideas and thoughts. Preaching them then back to the same community is sort of, um, it's not well received because they don't see you in that light. The message isn't necessarily heard because they have a bias towards you as to what they think and who they think you are. Um, I think the Taylor Press, in some ways, the, the community as a whole sees us as just, we've been here forever, we're just one of those components of, of the community. You can go, you can come, people come and go, people live and die, and we're still here. They, it's, it just becomes, you know, we're taken for granted to some degree, I think. And so a big part of my push now, uh, creating a bar, creating this outdoor 
activities and facilities is really about the locals. It's really about recruitment of local participation again. Well, and it's giving them something new and at the same time having, you know, there there's more and more reason to come out here. There's more and more reason for people who maybe are tired of Austin or Waco or, you know, we're, we're kind of in this sweet spot where you can get almost anywhere from here. Right. And at the same time, you can come here and have a relaxing meal, have a drink. Uh, it, it's, I love coming out here. And it's funny because I, ha- I don't think I've ever been out here in an evening. I think I've always been out here in the morning. Or I'm always here like right after we go to Snows or it's one of those things. And it's so, I, I've always, no matter what state, city I've lived in, I always take a trip out to get, to get your head clear, to get away from all the jerks, whatever the reason is, you know, this is one of the many great places around Austin that I like to go to because sometimes it's good to just drive for 45 minutes. One of the things I, I typically did for since I've been driving is to clear my head, and it's usually in the middle of the night when there's nobody on the road anywhere, is I take to the roads. Um, it's the country roads when I'm around here. When I lived in Lubbock, I would hit the loop and just drive around the loop because really? it was yeah, it was just a mindless it was a mindless drive, which allowed me just to clear my head and think. No matter where I've lived, there's I hit the road and it's usually late at night and it may be two, three, four hours that I'm driving around. Oftentimes having full out conversations, sometimes yeah. arguments. You know, if if, if that was on tape, it, <laughs> I, I would be locked up. No doubt about it. Well, no, now it would just be a podcast. And now it would be. I should just <laughs> stick on a dash cam and just go with it, right? I'd listen. It's, uh, it's rantings of a madman, I'll, I'll tell you. But it is a way to talk through ideas. We have, you know, as humans, we do much better when we hear concepts, even if they come out of our own head. They, we can work things out better. It's sort of like writing. You can crystallize your thoughts better. You understand what you're trying to say. You, you can formulate your thoughts. All of that comes through when you have an expression. But until you express it, it's locked in your head. And oftentimes, if you don't express it in some ways, it won't materialize either. So keeping ideas just locked inside, implementation locks is locked inside as well. Well, and when you, you have plans, I mean, we talked a little earlier about restaurants and just how there's an ebb and flow to things, but it's nice to be in a place where every time I come here, there's something new. Uh, even though the walls are stained with smoke, the tables are clean, the, the TV's clean. Like you, 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 you take care of your space, you work hard on it, and then when you want to upgrade something, when you want to change something, there, it, it, it's received well because that people know you work hard. People know that you, when they come here, they're going to get something of quality. I hope so. I mean, we certainly push quality. And the, this next phase is um, it's coming slow, but it's also being paid for just out of operations. So I'm not right. taking on any debt. Smart. I'm, not, I'm not a big debt guy. I understand, I understand the functionality of it. Um, I just prefer not to take on yeah. more than I have to. So it is coming a little bit slower, but it also is giving me more time to, to research, to look around, to make adjustments, to see how Taylor, the downtown area in particular, how it's starting to form, what the clientele looks like. Um, so I can better tailor what's going on, what's going to happen out there. And what, what it seems to be uh, evolving toward is something different than what we're serving 
in these walls. So it's going to be almost a, a tangential satellite sort of entity that has its own personality and its own thing that will be different than what you what you get here. Well, but you also have you have a broad range of people. If you wanted to, you know, you were talking about throwing parties and having people pull smokers into the parking lot. I mean, you could you could just sit and build a giant you know, like lifeguard stand and say everyone cook cook brisket and I'll decide the winner and like I, I would come to that. Yeah, right on. Just yeah, put a big uh, uh, observation tower in the yeah. middle of the parking lot and uh, and just say bring me brisket. That's right. Everybody line them up, roll them in, put them out. We'll see. The the but, Wayne Miller Invitational. <laughs> Don't be taking ideas out of my head now. Hey, I just want to come to them. You can you can have all the ideas. I'll just be here to record it. I don't want to do any of the work. I just want to I want to put a camera up and have the microphones running. No, I think those kind of ideas really are are sort of pressing me in, to some degree. How can we maybe once a month invite people out to special events that are not going to be open to the public that literally will be small groups of people to do different things. And maybe it's experimental things. Maybe it's things that are, are traditional they want to know more about. So there'll be some education. There'll be some R&D. There'll be how can, we, how can we push the envelope while also, um, exp I think, expanding ourselves more deeply into people who know about us in a surface way. So if you've just had a couple of experiences with this dining, but you want to know more about who we are, what we are, what we do, why yeah. we do it. Then we create events, like overnight events. Why not come out and we'll think about, I think about my youth and I think about getting together with friends, camping. And some of the best times I had is when we would go on hunting trips, fishing trips, just camping trips. But it was always, the best times were always at night. Everybody got back together. We were sharing, sharing some beer, some bourbon, whatever yeah. it might be. Fire's going. Fire's going. Telling stories. Somebody's cooking something. Um, awesome stories come out. Some great stories develop. People are always doing just crazy, stupid things yeah. at that point in time. Um, creating more, I guess... Barky's all about stories anyway, so we're creating more content every, every time we have one of these events. You would have enjoyed uh, at the Houston barbecue, there was a ton of people the night before. That's what I understand. And uh, yeah, it got, I mean, I was, I was being, we actually set up and recorded, and I was being handed soju mixed with coffee. Uh, some of the guys were just lining up shot glass, little plastic shot glasses. I mean, it was, it was fun, and because they were cooking other stuff, there was... You know, someone had sausage over here. There was some Thai food being made. There was, it, it, it was something that I wish I had, like a little trailer. Or like I wish my car converted into something because I would have stayed there that night because it got crazy. Like at some point, someone was driving a golf cart way too fast around. Like I was just like, this is pandemonium. Like right before there's an actual barbecue event, it was really funny. Those are, but those are. I think that if you want to find the real human element to all of it there's where you're going to find it. That's where all the personalities really come out because we are all more buttoned up when it comes to actual service. You know, we all want to present ourselves well. But when you can cut loose a little bit and you're not so concerned about public consumption of, of your actions or words, then things happen and are said or, and are done that um, 
I think are a bit more reflective of who we all are and what we all believe in. And what seemingly always comes out in every one of those situations is how much we care for our families, our friends, yeah. uh, doing the right thing, um, just living life, doing stupid, ridiculous things, making bad decisions and living yeah. to tell about it and sharing those with others. It's, you know, in a, in a way you're building a mythology. Well, and I grew up working a lot of jobs, but a lot of them were in kitchens and a lot of the people that w have worked in kitchens, you know, if you, if you ever bartended before, you, you probably know half the bartenders in the city you live in because there's an industry, there's a, there's a camaraderie around it. And I think, uh, you know, I, ha I have people all the time, you know, we're, we're, I can tell when someone hasn't worked in a restaurant, whether it's by the way they tip or the way they talk about things. And, and sometimes I'll tell people, like, you don't want to see behind the kitchen door. Like, you don't want to know the insane people that are cooking your food. I love them, and I think they're super fun. But, you, like, you're not ready for that, the reality of, like, the people listening to Andrew Dice Clay making your steak, you yeah, know? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and that's what you get. Yeah, oh that's my what gosh, it is. You do. You get the most colorful people. And it's, what's, what's interesting about that is, is kitchen and, uh, personalities are notorious for being introverts. Well, yeah, but you're introverted in your own little space. That's right. You can keep going. Yeah, it, it, that's absolutely true. Um, meeting new people is, is really the difficulty there and, and gauging new people on how well you'll be accepted. But, but put them in their environment and you see a whole different spectrum and it's, it's very entertaining. Well, in the kitchen, you know, your cathedral, it's, it's your own root. It's your own world with your own rules. So when people come in, it's like, hey, you say you can cook. You say you have these skills. Well, here's 50 briskets. Go to work. You know, it's like you, there, there's an equalizer in the kitchen because no matter how cool you are, how great your hair is or whatever, you can only cut, cut an onion so fast. So I like, I like that idea of like, yeah, I might have one eye, but I can chop an onion and cook a stew faster. Than, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like the, there's, a, there, there's something in there to have that skill, to have that ability that allows you to be like almost a superhero in your own little world of, you know, the 10 people in the kitchen. If you want to be a superhero. Or whatever, but it's like <laughs> we all have those stories. I mean, some of the guys that are the most famous right now for food, like Maddie Matheson, uh, he was just a, a hard-working kitchen guy who was goofy and drank a lot and did stupid stuff and all the stuff we're talking about. But now he just gets to be stupid and they put a camera on him. Yeah. And th that sounds dreamy to me. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Maddie. <laughs> we actually, I met him quickly at Hot Luck. He was super cool. Billy was there too. Yes. Um, I kind of snuck in because I, I didn't actually have tickets to the whole thing. So I actually was going there because I was doing a Memorial Day smoke and I want to invite some of Franklin's guys that I know. So I brought him little invitations. And then I was like, oh, that's Maddie Matheson. I'm going to go say hi. And then Sam Jones was there, and we, we had a good time just kind of sitting there all afternoon. What would you think about Sam? Have Sam? you met him before? Oh, yeah. We met at the National Barbecue and Grilling Association. Um, we all went. Uh, uh, Jess Pryles kind of was the Pied Piper and led us from the hotel bar to the bar down the street with karaoke. And then we're all doing karaoke. And then Sam blew everyone's mind with amazing karaoke. Like, he knows country music, for God's sakes. And... Uh, well, he's a gospel singer. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where he, he got it from. Yeah, he's he's spent many years singing it, singing in the choir, singing gospel at church. 
So, and his dad's a preacher. So, yeah, I knew that. So, you know, at, take those two components and throw in the fact that he's from North Carolina, from Aiden, North Carolina. Yeah. And honestly, I could sit there and listen to him read the, read the phone book and be thoroughly entertained. <laughs> he is, he, yes, he's, uh, when we were in Chicago just a few weeks ago, there's 17, 20,000 people there. They bring all of the pitmasters up on stage just to introduce us and, and acknowledge yeah. us. After the introduction, um, Billy goes and, and see, learns that the mic's hot. He gets the mic, grabs it, gives it to Sam. Sam goes out in front of everyone, starts singing George Jones. That's you know, the, I think that's the video I saw on Instagram yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and, that was and amazing. That is, there's Sam Jones. It, he is, he's all of that. He's not only a, a, a tremendous pit master, but he's an incredibly entertaining guy and just a, a wonderful human being. Well, and it shows when you pick something, when you have one thing that you're doing, you have this room to play with your other skills. You have this room to be, okay, I'm going to cook barbecue like a maniac, but at the same time, I can do karaoke. I can goof off with my friends. I can... You have that freedom once you've picked your thing. And it, it's cool to see all these guys come together that, you know, Billy Durney is a totally different person from Sam Jones, but they're buddies, you know. You're totally different from both those guys, but you're friends with all them too. Like it's the, the thing that connects you is great. And on top of that, you're really fun people. So it's like, it's like a double win. Um, the more time I spend with them, the more time I, I truly admire and appreciate all of them. But I think that people can feel that. They can sense that. It's something about the barbecue community also that is attractive to people who are not in it. I think they just inherently feel it. They can see it. Um, go to any, any barbecue event and watch the barbecue people act. Look at how they interact with each other. Yeah. It, they all, it's like one big family. And they don't even have to know each other. They can just be introduced to each other. And it's, oh, you're cousin so-and-so from mom's side. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the way it's treated, and that's the way people act. And um, the family is the family. You know, you got some crazy people, you have some sane people, and you have a whole lot of people in between. Well, and I've been, you know, the show's a year old now, so I've, I've gone beyond Texas Barbecue, which was the original thing. So I've been to competitions, but I've been to San Antonio and Houston, where it's a little more serious, and then gone to Memphis, where it's like, I'm not even sure half the team's turned in anything, you know? So you see the people who want to work hard. You see, you know, I, I, w I was just with Brad Orson, and he loves Sam Jones as well. Uh, and we were just talking about those kinds of things. That, like, there are certain events that it's just a party, and that's fun, but the guys that are really cooking, the guys that are really working, the guys that are actually, I think, more fun are also trying to win a few things. Yeah, Brad's up there with the in the fun meter, <laughs> isn't he? Oh my God! There. But the things that he can do, I, his vision for whole hog is just amazing. That yeah, the robo hog, the robo hog, the, the way that he can articulate that any hog in any sort of position he wants, and that truck, that yeah, apparatus Jeep. that he that he cooks it in, is just the whole thing. It's just a show. It is talk about marketing one on one. I mean, he's using his degree to its end. It's, it's utmost capability. Well, but at the same time, he's just goofing around. He's just like, oh, well. Yeah, but he's well, winning world championships goofing yeah, around. Exactly. <laughs> Let's not kid yourself. Yeah, and he's got 
three kids and he's got a restaurant and he's got, I mean, he's got so much going on, but it, I, don't, I don't think that dude ever stops to think about how much fun he's having. He's just having the fun. But what's beneficial to him and what's really helpful to him is he has the whole family involved in the business. True. Mom, dad, sister, they all play integral roles, which allow him to be the creative and marketing arm of, of the company. You know, and he can go out and he can cook and he can be the face and he can be the brand. Um, I, I think the face of the brand, while he has this incredible loyal infrastructure that is family, that he knows is, is not going to do anything contrary to what's in the best interest of the company. Well, and I spent days there at their tent, Memphis in May. We got trapped there by the rain. We just, we just kept kind of circling back because it's, uh, you're, you're always going to have more fun, you know, around the people that you know. And so because I knew him from the uh, other events and, uh, you know, me and Brooke got along really well. It was just so cool to, to be there. And because he's smart and because they work so hard, you know that the charcoal, the pellet smoker company, like all the people within their little tent were going to be cool too. And it was just always a good time. And then we'd go to these other tents and the guys – you know, I, I don't expect people to know my show, but at the same time, like, we had an official media pass. But it was like most of the places were just like, now nah, you can't come in here. This is our thing. This is our two-story party. This is our... And the ones... Then I, I interviewed two more. I, I found them, and they're already drunk at, like, 10 a.m. And they, they said multiple times in the interview, I don't even like barbecue. And I was just like, well, thanks for nothing. I got half an hour on my recorder that I'm just going to erase now. Oh, man. That, you know, I, I wondered, I wondered what kind of feedback Aaron was going to get off of his, uh, off of his comments that he doesn't even eat barbecue. Yeah. But I, I can see that to a certain extent. Uh, it would take a lot for me. Like there's very few times where I'm like, I don't need to eat any more barbecue, but I can, I mean, I can, I can get it if I, I don't even really like cooking briskets anymore. Like I've kind of gone to beef ribs and to a few other things, uh, but I'll go back to it too. You know, I have the ability to kind of cook what I want when I want. So that's nice, but I, I can understand it. I just would never, I, I could eat brisket every day. Like I do. I mean, it's, if there's not, if I'm not going to get barbecue, there's probably some in my fridge, you know, like it's just, it's, it's nice that way. And you got an unlimited supply, so. Yeah, I have an unlimited. But, you know, I grew up, and we rarely ate barbecue. Really? Rarely. My father was really adamant about, what I cook is for sale. It's not for you. But he also knew the way I ate. So <laughs> I could sit down and put away half a brisket on my own. And he's like, mm, I can't afford you to do that. So what did he, what was like a family meal usually? A typical family meal. You know, we would have pork chops, fried chicken, sandwiches good stuff just no, no tuna noodle casserole no but my father would eat a can of tuna for lunch every day just here. like flat out out of with a right fork out, of out of the, the can. can right out of the can he would just pop the can eat the tuna and that was it that was his lunch it's a hard working man right there well that's why he's 165 pounds when you know throughout <laughs> his entire career that and right. running uh do you like running only if my life depends on it. Yeah, I hate running. <clears throat> no, I was more of, I was more of a short burst um, type of athlete. So I played a lot of basketball. Um, I took to, once I could no longer play basketball. The just the pounding was too really too 
rigorous on my knees and ankles. It would take me, let's see, I stopped playing basketball when I was about 35. Um, it would take two or three days for me to recover, and I just needed exercise with less pounding, so I, I migrated to cycling. And I don't do as much as I used to, but I still prefer to get out. I can sweat, I can push myself, um, I can think. It gives me, it, it still, it's, it's like driving in a way. One, especially once I get my legs back to me, then you know I can go for, say, an hour, hour and a half, put in about 20, 25 miles, and I'm good. I'm real good. Yeah. But um, I, miss, I miss the competition. I miss banging of bodies. I'm, I miss being physical. Uh, I loved football when I was a kid and growing up through high school. Um, anything where I could be pushing around on, a, on someone else. And I guess challenging myself against other people's skill levels and strengths, which you can do in cycling, but it's, it, I, I like the close combat stuff. I really do, one-on-one. Um, -on -one. I, like, I like to feel that. It pushes me, and um, it drives me in a way. If you wanted to, you could probably start a little basketball league or a little like three-on-three -three or something. Yeah, out, but it'd be here. like donkey basketball, you know? <laughs> It wouldn't be what it used to be. I couldn't. I couldn't manage that yeah. anymore. But I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed playing. I, it was. It was one of my favorite things to do. Well, and we we all need those things. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, most of us don't want to just like work and go home and watch TV. It's easy to do that, but I, I, I have like, I almost have an anxiety around if I haven't seen or touched my bicycle in a while. Like, I need to know the tires, like there's air in the tires. Like, I need to know, even if I don't use it for a month, I want to know that it's ready if I feel like taking a bike ride, you know? There's something about that freedom. And bicycles have this unique thing where, and maybe because it's your own power, or, but, it, you know, for since it was invented, it's always been this kind of fun, playful. There, you rarely see someone angry riding a bicycle, you know? It's true. It's a, it's a happy medium. Well, you, get, you take out a lot of frustration. You put a lot of energy into it, especially when you're focused about doing it. If you have goals that, that surround it, I want to meet certain time goals, I want to meet certain speed goals, I want to meet, be able to take certain number of elevation goals uh, in, in those time frames. You're focused on making sure those happen. And so it's hard to be upset when you're pushing all of that energy into right. trying to make that into kinetic energy, right? You, you don't have time to be upset. Who are you going to be upset at? You? The weather? The traffic? Well, I mean, that doesn't do any good. Well, and now, especially in most places where there's traffic, a bicycle is the best way to get around. And now in Austin, they have all these jump bikes and bicycles with, like, uh, electric assists. So you can, at a comfortable pace, be doing 20, 25 miles an hour, which is almost as fast, faster than cars in traffic. Yeah. I You know, I was just just came back from Sweden and Denmark. In Denmark, bicycles are everywhere, and yeah. they have electric motor assist as yeah, well. Yeah, all that stuff. But that's the way most people get around. It's not by, you know, it's not by cars, it's bicycles. Did you take cars when you were there? I did, because, it, because we were traveling from, usually it's on a schedule, going from one place to another. Right. It's oftentimes it's late in the evening, and there's packs of us. And Billy's with us. Yeah. Well, I, I'm more curious of the logistics. Like, did it feel like, like, were you Ubering? I guess the cars were probably all hired. And no, we had we actually had our hosts 
Johan and Johan were, were tremendous and they taxied us everywhere. So, and it was whirlwind just as these trips typically can be. Right. You want to hit as many places as you can. They want to take you to experience, you know, the country, the culture. And a lot of that just doesn't lend itself to just sort of laid back ease of, of sightseeing. You're not walking the streets. Just, not really, not unless it's late night, you know, just trying to get back to the hotel after. How long were you all out there? We were, we were in that area for a week. Nice. Yes, we spent a couple of days in, in Copenhagen, then um, we were in Sweden for probably about four days, and then back in Copenhagen before leaving. I just met a guy, there's a place in Sweden that he was... Uh, they do classes and stuff. It's probably one of the places Holy you Smoke Barbecue. Holy Smoke, that's it. That's where we were. Nice. And, and that place looks awesome. They're open like 78 days out of the year. Really? That's it. Because the entire, the entire compound, and it is a compound, it's, it's literally on a farm out in the middle of nowhere. And it's all built out of, out of shipping containers. So you've got these 40-foot-long shipping containers that have been converted into kitchen spaces, into prep spaces, into bars, into merchandise sales, into storage. So it's a whole experience. It's a whole experience. The only thing that's fully covered is the pit room, and it's like an old barn or shed. But the rest of it is open. Even the, all of the dining is, really? is open-air dining. There is some canopy dining around the perimeter. But other than that, it's all open air. So once it starts to, to freeze, once it starts to snow and get cold, which happens September, uh, September, October, they're done. Oh, so you're saying it's not like they're open a few days a week. They're just open a certain season. They're open like 78 days out of the year. Crazy. But they're also doing between 600 and 1,000 covers a day. People traveling. It was it, being there, doing a class, meeting people who were part of the class, listening to where they were traveling from, it barbecue there, since there's nothing really like that anywhere else in the area, it is a destination location, no different than us. People traveling three, four, people in the class were coming from Finland, coming from, um, of course, Sweden, Denmark. Uh, I believe there was someone from Germany and Austria. So they, they're pulling people from all over. What are they cooking on? They're cooking on a, a Franklin um, 1000. Really? And they also have a JNR 1300. And they have uh, a hog pit. Um, yeah, I forget the. Like a whole hog pit? Yeah, a whole hog pit that Sam Jones has some. He's, he said that he uh, helped to design it. So I think it has more to do with the manufacturer from Carolina that. Hmm. Is the, it like that 17th Street pit where you can flip the hog? No, you got to flip it out manually. You can't just do the, <laughs> one of the Sam Jones flip overs, which was, that's, I mean, that's his. Innovation. Oh, that's Sam Jones originally? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was his innovation. So that's he, amazing. So you could, yeah, it didn't take all, you know, four people to flip a hog. Well, I'll tell you what, talk, after talking to Brad, he was on an episode a while back, and he was saying no matter how good he cooks a hog, he still wants to get the, the skin like Sam Jones does. Very few people can pull it off. I mean, he makes this crackling. Is, is, you know, it's crispy, it's salty, it's fatty, it's 
delicious. I mean, in a way, it's it's like unpuffed pork rinds. Hmm. It's just dynamic. And then mixed in with the pork, it's it's no wonder why they've they've been who they are, selling what they sell forever. Being that that was about the only thing Skylight Inn sold. That, a, I think it's still all they sell. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Well, it's it's a beauty in simplicity. It's a beauty in just this is what I'm going to do. I mean, to most restaurants, what you guys cook is a pretty small menu. Yes, to most to most restaurants. Right, that's what sure. I'm saying. But I think you know Texas style barbecue is a very limited menu to begin with. Exactly. Um, most are ten ten items or less total. That's because you're many. cooking a lot of those. Items. That's a lot of items to cook. <laughs> I mean, so many places focus on brisket. Beef ribs, pork ribs, pork butt, maybe, yeah. you know. Don't venture too far out. Sausage is in some places and not in others. But, yeah, it's it's a tight menu. But you need specialized equipment for much of this. Well, and you have to cook. There's not a lot of restaurants where you cook the entire service at once. That's, that's the any. beauty of barbecue. Yeah, everything you... You cook your ass off for, for hours or a day or longer, prep and cook, all to be served like quick service. Yeah. It's, it's the holding that's really the challenge. It's the big challenge. It's always been the challenge. It's better than it used to be. I mean, there was a time not that long ago when people knew, okay, um, if I'm going to eat barbecue, then I'm going to eat it on a certain day in a certain time window that's pretty tight. Maybe it's on Tuesdays because Joe's working, and I know to cook, go eat between 11 and 1. After that, it just starts getting too dry. Yeah. So there, there were these, these Those are optimum times. Rules. Yeah, there were these optimum times, and that's very true. It's, holding has done, I think it's really made our, our industry viable, not you know for dinner service as well as late in the afternoon service. And it made it a lot easier for multiple days. Holding it, I probably brought up the, the quality of barbecue by a full letter. Now, you do you use like a CVAP or anything fancy, or you just hold them in we, the... I, no. I forgot what they're called. The they're Cambros. Cambros. They're, but they're just insulated boxes. They're right, no yeah. different than any, any sort of ice chest. A Yeti or something. Right. Yeah. It's exactly the same, just insulative properties are a little better. But they're meant for, for transportation. Right. So for catering, really, put them in, slide them in. They've got, you know, lips for 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 um, pans and, you know, they're pre-made for you. Have you seen? Have you worked with any? I'm trying to think of where we were. Maybe Southside, where they had, you know, it's like a machine that controls temperature and humidity. Mm. Uh, have you worked with anything like that? Do you are those interesting to you, or are you rather just stick with Cambros? Right now, I'm, Cambros work well for me but right. i can see if we adjusted our 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 process say we were cooking during the day and we wanted to finish have our meats finished by mid midnight let's say and we wanted to be open for service by 10 a.m i could see holding an electric unit that held at about a buck 50 and just just, just slide them in and hold them they're not breaking down any further they're, they're staying within temp you just you let them go, and then they're ready to serve the next day. I can see that completely. Right now, that's not where we are. That's not how our process is working. But that's not to say I wouldn't, I wouldn't look into that, especially, yeah. especially as, you know, there comes a point in time when you reach 
a critical mass of service. There's only so many people that you can serve. There's only so much food you can cook on the equipment that you have. So how do you make that available? How can you um, service a horde of people all at once? You have to have all the food ready. You can't have them waiting. You can't sell out 20 minutes after you open. So if we had, if we had you know, four times the volume, I would probably be looking at, at something similar to that. But we don't. So that's not where I am. Well, and I'm just always curious because you talk to some people and it's like a, there's, a, there's a purity to this equipment or to some people it's just because you've never needed it. Or I'm always so curious. A lot of people, you know, there were guys in Austin that were cooking on reverse pits and they were known for that. But it's just because that's what the owner bought because he didn't know better. Right. You know, so there's there's a. There's so much interest to me on what people are cooking on because, like, we just interviewed Roland Smoke in Austin, and they're just cooking on a pit because it's what's been attached to their trailer forever. And they they put in a thicker plate and they've adjusted it, but you know now he's finally getting to the point where he's buying a, I think he's buying a 500 or a thousand from uh, Sunny, mm. and so there's just that there's so much in this industry of equipment of you know changing out all the cambros that's not a cheap thing like you're not just going to do that because you feel like it you're going right. to do it because it's it's worth it and i'm so curious to see all the different restaurants because coming in it's kind of like brewing beer you know now you can just hire someone to buy you a brewery you know they know where to get all the but originally you it took some ingenuity you know like someone designed the 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 pits in here, they put the bricks together. Right. They, they decided how the doors were going to open. Uh, now you can just say like, you know, someone could just call up someone that's coming up like Dylan Taylor, one of the younger guys and say, Hey, I want to open a restaurant. What do I do? And that guy will just like lay it out for him. You know, it's, it's nice when you're not the first guy cause you can kind of steal off others plans. Yeah. I think the reason that, you know, we certainly have the status and stature that we have today, not because of our own efforts, but because of the giants on which, whose shoulders which we stand. I mean, they made it possible for us to see further and to do more yeah. because they laid the foundation for all of it to happen. And without that, we would all be starting from zero and we would all have to go through the school of hard knocks. I mean, you think about the way barbecue was done forever and ever and how just closed it was, how proprietary it, it was. And, and people didn't talk about anything. They didn't talk about wood. They didn't talk about spices. They didn't talk about cuts. They, didn't, they did what they did. And, you know, this is my yeah. livelihood. I'm not telling but, you any of my secrets. Well, but, you know, in a way, there was, there was probably as many barbecue establishments 50 years ago, um, 70 years ago, as there are now, maybe more, but they were all smaller, and they were all independent, and they dotted every landscape. Every meat market had one. Every small town had, you know, countless numbers in them. And so your process, your signature taste was yours. That's how you differentiated yourself. Then, the, you know, the industry thinned. It was culled heavily especially in, in urban areas, but it was, it was almost went, I don't want to say extinct. In this form, it was pushing those extinction levels. We were certainly uh, needed to be given protectionary status, but then it exploded again. 
And so while there was very little barbecue, very little, even less good barbecue, it was advantageous, I think, to teach people. Because teaching people what you're doing um, helped to spread the word about who you were and what you were. It allowed people to, to be exposed to not only what barbecue was, but to taste it and to experience it firsthand that wasn't just something from a backyard or from a wedding. Well, now you can see your work translated all over the planet. And it's, there's a lot of gratification from that, but, there's, but it also makes life, I think, um, I don't want to say more difficult, but it certainly makes it, there's an added challenge. You create, you spawn all of, all of these new ideas, all of these additional spaces where there wasn't quality before, now there is an abundance of quality. Consumers, consumers um, purchasing habits though have not changed. What's been true in the past is true today, and that is location, location, location. So convenience, that's why Starbucks are on every corner, or right. McDonald's, or CVS and Walgreens. Convenience, there is a big role for convenience in our society. So the more quality barbecue there is closer to someone's homestead, those will become more utilized than something maybe that they appreciate more. That becomes more of a specialty again. It, it's almost going full circle. Um, even though the level of participation from the general public has increased tremendously, um, the basis from which you can pull are becoming fragmented. So the share of pie literally is small, it opens up wider just through attrition, then it contracts again based on quality. And you can bet that at some point in time you're going to see a, a thinning out of these establishments again, and you'll see it open back up. It's, it's natural business cycles. Well, what, what do you think originally did it? Like the American Heart Association and all this like anti-red meat talk? Or what do you think killed, killed barbecue? I think what killed barbecue in, in the cities is where, if it's not in the cities, then it doesn't have the media attention on it that all other restaurants do receive. It, it was all in the inner core cities, just like everything else was, just like you see here in Lockhart and other small communities. But you saw property, property taxes beginning to rise, property values beginning to rise. And if you're a peasant food with very small margins at a very low price point, there comes a point in time when you can't sustain, you can't continually sustain that, that tax burden that comes in. And somebody is going to come along and, go, and offer you a crazy amount of money for the plot of land you're on. Yeah. That's one, that's one pressure, I think, that happened in urban areas that didn't necessarily happen in rural areas. Um, the second part is, is it's hard work. I think that there, people found that it's easier, I don't want to say, it's not as physically taxing to go to college, get an education, have an office job, work in a corporation, than it is to sling barbecue and, and split wood and and burn yourself and, and sweat. Well, we've all seen a place. I'm trying to think of the name of it. There was a place uh, just outside of town where I grew up, and it totally went from barbecue, ribs, all this stuff, to like burgers and fries, because it just, 
I don't know if it was the traffic or what, but you know, it's definitely easier to, to cook up some burgers and fries than it is to spend 10 or 12 hours working on barbecue. We saw that you would see that in, in um, a lot of Texas barbecue establishments also catered. Right. An extent, but barbecue wasn't always what people wanted in catered environments. They, they wanted other types of food, chicken fried steaks, fried catfish, things of that nature. So you would see this development of a menu, a catering menu that then found its way on into the retail menu. And barbecue establishments, they lost their barbecue identity. Think about the barbecue inn in, in Houston. It's clearly a barbecue place, yet right. they're known for their chicken fried steak. You know, why is that? It's, it's, it's literally because, you know, they found another market. They've, and one that fed, that really tailored more to, to the local constituency than, than the barbecue itself was. Well, and now you're seeing, I mean, I know half a dozen guys who just cater barbecue now. And there's, there's one who, uh, I'm trying to think of where he said, he's probably going to open a barbecue place between here and Snows. And people are looking at these barbecue pilgrimages and they're thinking, oh, I can just fill in the gaps. And so you're seeing now people looking at, okay, with this boom, you know, I don't just have to, you know, rather than work a couple dozen weddings a year, I'll just open a brick and mortar or I'll put a trailer on this road at this busy intersection or, you know, people are starting to, to, to jump in. And I think we both know that the quality is what's going to keep them there, but it's just really interesting to see what, uh, the, just the different ways people are, you know, I, I, I feel like people got excited about barbecue and they like tried to hit a home run and either realizing the fence is like a thousand or 2000 feet away. So it's like that home run is going way further than what a normal, what a normal hit would, uh, would get you. Yeah. Hitting home runs is hard. It, but now you're, I mean, look at, you guys are iconic. Like there's, you guys are, the, the ball's never going to land. You know what I mean? You're just, you're, you get to cook, you get to, expand you get to be this place where you know if you want uh, if you want to have billy durney and sam jones here for a cook-off you know you'll, you'll probably the scheduling will be a little tough but like they're going to come out just because for the experience they don't care about it you know what i mean they're going to have fun here yeah i think that has a lot to do it carries the same gravitas that say peter lugers does in in brooklyn right i mean John Tizar's knife in, in, in Dallas may produce, say, steak for steak. Maybe there are, maybe John's is better. I don't know. But he, has, he doesn't have the longevity that Peter Luger's does. And I think that, um, and this is, the argue, well, this is the position that I argued on um, an NPR interview not that long ago when this article came out about New York rivaling Texas for best barbecue. Of course, it was, it was there to s stir the pot, right? Yeah. It was, and, but my whole point was is a number of people can do it short term. Who can do it long term? Who, who has longevity? I think that's a, a, a true um, test of commitment because one generation doing it well for 20 years 
doing it better than anyone for 20 years is a great run. How do you continue that? How do you instill that in another generation? How do you instill that into it? Make it institutionalize that that need for quality. How does that happen? I think that's hard. I think that's really hard to do because some you have to have a core group of people that care as much as you do, and it's not always the easiest to find that. When you have a family that's fully in support, that's all working toward the same goal and mission, and creating future generations who are willing and able to carry that legacy on, that adds to you know your ability for longevity. But there's no guarantees. There aren't any guarantees. So to have places like Southside or Luling City Market or even Coopers in, in Lano or here that have been around 50 years or more, that takes, that takes a concerted effort. It's, uh, it's not something that just happens. Um, somewhere along the way, somebody has a plan, you know? Well, and you see you see the way you know Cooper's is just kind of going for locations I don't know how many they have now but it's yeah, a bunch uh, now Southside went a different direction and they're all about shipping and you know I've toured their like sausage factory it's crazy yeah it's crazy I mean they're they're putting out sausage all over the country now from that one location yep. and it's cool to see when I mean I, I like to call them hustlers but they're really just businessmen you know they're they're going in all these different directions, uh, starting from that strong base, and it shows you can take this idea, you can take this simple thing, and yeah, maybe it's not perfectly fresh, but you're getting uh, I, I don't know if it's Foodie Direct or who it is, but you're getting a brisket from Texas within a couple of days of when it's cooked. You throw it in the oven at, at a low temperature, and you've got you know a delicious thing that someone took a long time to cook and you can like have it at your doorstep like that those I those ideas that work is crazy to me yeah we've you know we've been shipping for consistently now for probably about five years or so and it is I mean we're at a point now where it has overtaken our previous catering business we don't cater nearly as much we we've just sort of swapped out shipping for catering yeah it's less work a lot less work. Um, any given catering is you're looking at a six or seven hour commitment yeah. just for just for the service. You, if we're an hour away from this location, we've got an hour or so for load in. We've got the full cook. Then we've got the travel time. We've got unload, set up, serve, load out, travel back, unload, clean, put away. It takes an incredible amount of effort and time. Well, and, and but you also, you know, I've, I've been to multiple catered barbecue events where, you know, you guys want someone there to, to cater it properly. Yeah, Whereas I've totally. been I've been to places where they'll have really nice barbecue and some moron in a white shirt is cutting it. And it's just like, I, I realized being, being at multiple barbecue caterers, I realized... Oh, okay, there's a way you have to bring even more quality to a catering event because if you just drop off the food and let someone else handle it, they they're gonna make your they're turn into garbage, not garbage, but they're gonna screw it up. Ronnie Killen found that out when he was, I think he was at Minimade Park, or I believe it was Minimade Park that he was selling barbecue there for a while, but it was also, I don't know if it was Aramark or 
Someone screwed it up. Sadaka, who who it was that was the the catering company for the for the um, facility. They weren't cutting it correctly. They weren't holding it correctly. They it was he was so unhappy with what happened that he pulled that program weeks after it started because nice. he's he was like, no, this isn't well, going to work. But he's but he's doing quality control. He's paying attention enough absolutely to not it, let it go not for just six the dollars. Yeah. And he realized that. He also realized that he's doing himself more damage than good that the short-term dollar is going to be a long-term detriment yeah. to the brand, and you have to protect. That's what blows my mind about the airport in Austin, is that there's all these brands that are these supposedly iconic local brands, and they're letting, they basically just sold their name, and they're just cooking garbage food and sticking a, a, a name on it. You know, there's only three or four places in the whole airport in Austin that are actually local businesses, and the rest just take, uh, you know, Stubbs or whoever's name, and they just stick it on a mediocre taco and I, I still can't believe that 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 people are allowing that well I, some people I, I can't even say it's think about people have we all have I think a need for for compensation based on the hours the time the effort the expertise we've put in and at some point people realize I'm not getting any younger. I need to start. I need to start monetizing more of, of what I've developed. And if there's no longer a long-term strategy past yourself, then yeah, I mean, you start. I think at some time monetizing everything you have, just to capitalize on whatever income that you can get out of that. Because you know, in 15, 10, 15 years, you're probably going to be out. I mean, your exit strategy is not to stay in. It is. It is to exit out, so capitalize on the on the revenue while you can. And I don't, you know, who am I to say that's the wrong thing to do? People, you know, this is this is America, and everybody follows their own path, and that's the beauty of it. Um, mine's a bit more, I think, purest just from the standpoint as of I want our people, our training, our oversight, our process, our procedure to sort of carry on no matter where we are and what we're doing. Well, and you like hard work. And a lot of people that just want to put their name on something and make the money, they're, they're, they want to, like, the idea of retirement to me just seems goofy because you're, like, you spend all this time doing this thing just to get away from it. It's like, why don't you just do something more fun, make less money, and just, like, I'll just work forever. Like, I don't really care. It's easier for us in today's world to say that. I think in, in, previous, in a previous lifetime, it was almost impossible to do that. You got locked into a profession and you yeah. became skilled at it. There was really no out. You know, who's going to hire you to do something else? Because you weren't creating yeah, your own. you put a decade into architecture or whatever you do. Whatever it was. And, and so you pretty much were in it. You're in it for the long term. And yeah, you can get tired. You can get burned out on it. It happens. Well, and now, though, it's going the other way, too, because now you can go on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn and see a million people calling themselves entrepreneurs, and that's about the only entrepreneurial thing they're doing is putting it on their resume, you know? So we, we have this, this lack of understanding of, yeah, maybe, maybe in another lifetime you were that person that just needed to, like, learn how to install fences, and, like, you were happy doing that, you know? And it's like there, there's almost a drive for this unknown that really isn't anything more than business or hard work. But we want to just like make it into a, you know, I'm, I don't know if you, 
you see this on social media, but there's just all these people that are saying, hey, like, look at my Ferrari, and you can do this too, and, like, all this stuff. And it's just half the time they rent that stuff just to sell the class that they're trying to sell you, you know? Right. It's goofy. It's brand development. Because when the brand becomes more more important than the product or service that you're supposedly selling, then you have a problem. I mean, there's a lot of... That's what I would call a shell company. Seriously. (laughs) Selling trash with a great label on it. Wow, sounds like subprime loans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of the funny thing is that we we do live in an economy that ebbs and flows, and Texas is a great place that gets hit the least, it seems, and at least the last few economic problems. Uh, but at the same time, like there is, you know, I don't know, I don't think barbecue's got any chance of slowing down anytime soon, but you never know what the market, what, you know... Uh, God forbid any kind of like blight on the the beef, but even that's you know tough to come by. I know everyone's kind of fighting to get briskets right now. It's you know it's being the export of of the idea of Texas barbecue going overseas, going into Asia, going into really Europe in a big way. It's, it does put a crimp on North American beef, Angus beef in particular. So not only do we have this record number of, of establishments opening doing Texas barbecue, you also have established pork-driven, pork-centric establishments going into the brisket market. You have, hmm. you have well, Arby's has, has done its thing right, and go, yeah, and yeah. going in. In Texas, you have just about every Tex-Mex place is going to add some sort of brisket taco. But in Europe, you have this growing number of, of Texas barbecue places that's a, that are beef-centric. And... We're just now, the beef stock, the supply of beef is just now back at a level that it was before pre-drought. Hmm. So we're just now climbing out of that. And so Europe, in my opinion, has got to find a way to, to export not only the beef stock that we have here, but ranches. And they're going to have to start raising fattier beef to do that. The cultures in both Europe and Asia have been one of lean meats, no biotics, no growth hormones. We're full of all of that here. Yeah. So as, as the niche ranches grow here that meet those demands, you're seeing them, larger percentages of their product is now being apportioned overseas. For, uh, Creekstone is a prime example. They were bought by a Japanese investment group. As soon as that happened, 20% of output automatically was assigned overseas. Wow. Automatically, that puts another crimp on on supply. I mean, we can't escape the the, the economic pressures of, of supply and demand. The demand continues to grow. The supply still isn't keeping pace. Prices continue to rise. That will also, you know, people complain occasionally here about it's expensive. I didn't. I don't want it to be expensive. Right. Nobody here wants it to be expensive. We're just trying to keep our heads above water. Um, but when. When you were in Texas, you have this collective memory of a time when it was peasant food and it was inexpensive and it was sort of the lower chamber of the, of the, of the food chain, yeah. of the culinary food chain. And they all want this to still be the case. They want, you know, 1985 to still be here. But it's not. It's not that way for, say, fajitas Everything. either. Yeah. Cast, a, another cast-off piece of meat. That, a burger used to be 29 cents at McDonald's. 
You can still get it for a buck. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't gone up that much. <laughs> but is it beef? Well, only, only in appearance. Uh, so you're saying I need to go to northern Africa and open up a corn-fed cow farm, basically? I think, well, maybe not northern Africa. Maybe a little hot there. but um, Well, somewhere that's near Europe that's cheap. Somewhere, right. Good luck in finding that. <laughs> go out on the steppes of Central Asia. I, you know, that might be the place to go. Well, I've seen, uh, I've seen you know, there's a certain demand or a certain... And God forbid, you know, if China ever decides they're going to go full beef, we're in trouble. Do you think they'll just, we'll get all our beef from China? No, I think it'll all go to China. Oh, you're saying all our beef going to China. If they ever, it's opening, China is opening back up. Um, they've just taken restrictions off of North American beef imports. So as the middle class continues to develop in China, the taste for beef, something that they don't get much of, is going to grow as well. As that happens, it's going to put further supply pressures because we're just not going to have it here. Where's it going to come from? Yeah. If they don't, if there's not something done to develop production in those regions, uh, nor, there's just not enough. There's not enough ranchers. There's not enough product here to keep us supplied in such a way that we can keep our prices stable in any way. They've been, you know. Most places are charging 20 bucks, give or take, a pound for, for brisket. I wouldn't be surprised to see that pushed to 30 in another five years. Well, it sounds like you need to move to Hawaii and open a cattle farm there. Find some like, find a place that's kind of in between where you can just grow. It sounds like growing cows is the business more than barbecue right now. But, you know, it's like all of the industrial magnets of, of the early 20th century understood control of the supply chain right let's control the iron ore let's control the the foundries let's can let's control the Every distribution er, all along the way right we'll control the rail lines we'll control it all and they made you know they had companies that had values greater than most countries on the world so I don't know. I'm not going to be the one that's going to go out and, and be the next King Ranch. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I think there's a limited, uh, there's limited regions in the world where the climate is such that you can grow Angus-type beef. Um, the further toward the equatorial regions you go um, and the more arid the, the space, you have to have cattle that are more adapted to arid lands, and they can't carry around all the fat. Right. So, you know, that's why Australia grows the beef that it grows, why Mexico developed the longhorn cattle. I mean, it, because those would work in those environments. Plus, you know, you have to have an, a subsequent grain stock that you can feed them with. Yeah, you need a lot. And a whole lot. That's why the Midwest is where you find most of, of the best American Angus beef coming from. I mean, they don't have to travel very far to take these animals to feedlots to feed them because they're right in the area in which the feed is grown. Um, those are the restrictions that you're going to see. But, but as, this, as this style of barbecue continues to grow, the need for beef is going to continue to grow. And where is it going to come from? In the short term, it's going to come from America. As it comes from America, that's just more pressure on us, which is going to put operational pressure on most of the industry. People who aren't running uh, a, a sound business models that aren't pricing according to you know prime costs, 
that um, are just opening, putting out, thinking, I'm putting out a great product, and that's going to be enough to keep me sustained, and they're going to find that they're not going to make it. So there'll, there'll be a culling out at some point in time of the best business practice along with the best food, and who provide the best experience. I mean, it's not, the food and price isn't just enough anymore. It's about getting people to come back. Getting to come one time, um, many people can do that. Well, and people like all these little twists. You know, you throw it in a taco, you uh, maybe do the beef ribs Korean marinade, or you, and I like some of this interesting stuff that's coming out, but a lot of these places rely on the twists rather than just making good food. And the twists have to find a way into a, a Main Street palette. If it's, because again, it's Main Street, those people that in that 80% of that distribution curve that are gonna really be the ones to sustain you over the long haul. Anything that is too specialized, too different, too niche. Too weird. It'll have a run, it'll have a spike, it'll have a quick decline, and unless it finds a, um, a new identity, it will probably die. Well, it sounds to me like uh, India and China are going to have a war because China's going to try to take all the cows. Well, <laughs> India will let her have them, you know? Unless, unless India goes full Muslim, you know, as long as there's a, a, a Hindu base there. Right, yeah. I, I don't think that India is, is really the issue. I think really do, though, think that China and the growing middle class, which both India and China are, are experiencing, um, it'll be China... Is, is where we're going to find most of our pressures coming from. Well, Wayne Miller, thanks again for giving us a global update on the barbecue world. Always my pleasure. Uh, you know, it's, it's always great to hear what you're hearing, hear who you're talking to, because, you know, even month to month, you, you went to Sweden. Like, you're, you're traveling and really being the Pope of barbecue, which is cool. we got to get you the... the the truck with the glass box uh, the or whatever. Mobile, get me a miter. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm all down for it, man. You just have to require. You have to tell everyone that they have to like ship a a Louis Miller, uh, you know, big truck around for you to drive in all the cities. If you can pull that off, put that on. I'll, the, put, I'll put that on you, Yanni. You could, you make that happen, and I'm I'm down for it. What is the uh, the rider? You got to put it on your rider. So when anytime someone has you come make an appearance, I need a big truck that says my name on the side. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, and thanks for always being you know, open, and thanks for keeping uh, the cathedral going. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. I always love talking with you and visiting with you, and you know yeah. you're always welcome here anytime. Hey, you know, if you don't find me here, I'll probably be down the street at another barbecue place, and uh, I'll always be around. And, uh, you know, you guys really, you put it together right here, and it's, uh, it's great that, you know, you're not trying to, to change anything. You're just yeah. keeping it real. Keeping it real, man. It's the only way we know. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey, they come in and meet, man. Y'all don't see me eat, man. Don't meet, man. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to stop by our shop at bestbbqshow.com and pick up your hashtag meat mash shirts and other gear. Subscribe to the show and follow us on social media wherever you like to hang out. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll be there posting the best barbecue in Texas, which is the best barbecue in the world.